Let's recap the B&B principle. The first B stands for birthday and the second for bleach. The principle of birthday states that wherever you go on planet Earth, you will never in your life bump into somebody who does not have a birthday. What birthdays do is inform people that before this day they did not exist. Having not existed, you couldn't have possibly created yourself. Having not created yourself, you couldn't have possibly know on your own what to do with a life you never created. Therefore, B. The second B stands for bleach and is representative of the principle that whatever existed before you arrived on planet Earth will not change its reality just to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes, thoughts and hopes, like bleach. By the time you arrived on planet Earth, bleach was not a friendly drink. Therefore, even if you beg, plead, cajole, threaten, bribe, explain logically to the bleach that it's anyway wet in a bottle and you're on the point of dehydration, it will not become a friendly drink for you, for the simple reason that it is not motivated to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes and hopes, since it does not need you, as evidenced by the fact that by the time you arrived on planet Earth, it was here before you. It is therefore independent of you. It therefore will not accommodate you. If you want to remain safe from bleach, you are dependent on the people who were here before your birthday, who are in the know, who will share with you the rules of bleach so that you can accommodate those laws. So that all of life is a massive attempt to discover the rules of life from those in the know who were here before us so that we can accommodate those rules so that we remain safe and happy. Today's podcast, I, I entitled it Facing the three on a motorcycle mentality. And it's making a point, according to the B&B principle, that our birthday has forced us to acknowledge our dependence upon truth. And that's really the topic of today's podcast. Of um, Basically, what we're saying like this, that everybody accommodates truth. Because everybody, all humanity, has no choice but to admit that uh, having a birthday has forced them to accommodate the laws of life before them. So even a totally secular person won't drink bleach. So in that sense, they're accommodating a law of life that was there before them. And the second that they're accommodating a law of life was there before them, they are acknowledging that they're not able to control any laws of life. So at which point do we part ways with secular people or atheists or agnostics or anybody who uh, doesn't want to be subservient to Hashem's laws? At which point are we different? That's really the topic. So what do I mean um, three on motorcycle mentality? So here's a great joke. I heard it from... Um, Orizoa. Orizoa, you know him? Israel, darling of Israeli uh, entertainment until he flipped out and then became a Haredi. So um, his friends uh, told him, Ori, one last party you have to give us before you leave us. He said, okay. He arrived at the party, they said, Ori, one last joke. He was comedian, talk show host, you know, playwriter and, and actor and everything rolled into one and um, he told me he made up this joke and he said two um, expert professional motorcyclists and wander into Yeshiva in Yerushalayim and get all enamored by Torah 
and decide, okay, that's the real life. Before you turn around, they did their first Shabbat and become what I call, not FFBs from, from birth, I call it FFTs from, from Tuesday. By the time Shabbos rolls around, they are totally in on the program. White shirts, sitters flying, black hats, the lot. And they're learning day and night, and they can't make enough makeup for lost time. They don't know what to do with themselves. And the Rosh Hashiva comes in one breezy uh, summer afternoon, and he says, Okay, Haftar, surprise. This afternoon, you're getting off. Anybody can do what they want. As the two look at each other, and they wink. They know exactly what they're doing. They're going to rent a motorcycle and live it up. In the good old days, and they used to go flying through the streets, the wind, the breeze, you know, and um, an undercover Israeli Mishara police sees them and he says, forget it. Two yeshiva boys on a motorcycle, there is no way they're not going to violate some traffic laws or do something ridiculous. There's no way that they know all this. I'm going to be a hero today. I'm going to show them up for who they are. I'm going to follow them. And this is going to be, I'm going to be like my colleague. I got two Haredi Datiyim, you know, playing hooky. I caught them. And he goes after them, Hill and Dale. And he's going further and further out to Yerushalayim. And he's going out of his mind. They are not violating not one traffic law. And they're just doing everything perfect. He's getting so resentful. He is getting so annoyed at them. He's just so determined to find them doing something wrong. Finally, he's had it from frustration. He calls them over. He stops them, produces the ID. He says, I'm an undercover uh, policeman. I've been following you around for a few hours. Yeah, you've got to tell me the secret. You're yeshiva, guys. Your titties are flying. How did two yeshiva boys know how to motorcycle so well? Not one traffic law did you violate. I, I just can't go over it. So knee-jerk on the spot, one of them says, we're religious. Hashem is with us. So he got very excited and he screamed, got you now. Three on a motorcycle, illegal. <laughs> so that was the joke, that Ori's, party joke that Orizawa made to his friend. So I analyzed this joke. And that's what I want to share with you today. And I said to myself, why did, how was he uh, able, knee-jerk reflex on automatic, to come up with such a joke, because at that point in his life, Orizoa had already tasted the uh, depth and the glory and the rich world of Asharedi Jews, of from Orthodox Jews, the world really of monotheism, what Avraham Avinu taught us, which the basic concept is that Hashem is all over. He's all over. So, What's really the fundamental difference between a uh, orthodox religious mindset and a secular mindset? It's really rooted in this, because we don't have such a concept that Hashem is in Beis Medrash, Hashem is is here and not there. He's in the shul and the house. At home, I can do what I want. Or we don't have a concept that there is any place in the planet Earth where Hashem isn't, so I can do what I want. And a secular mindset, basically the point is, if they want to subscribe, it's working? Yeah. 
if they want to subscribe to some kind of religious experience, they, what it means to be secular is, let's say somebody who believes in God, but it's to somehow be able to create some kind of cognitive dissonance, some kind of God is in the temple, or God is in this place, and he's not in that place, and it doesn't obligate me to bring God into every molecule of my life, and it's like I don't have to breathe the living God 24-7. I mean, not everything that I'm doing has to be a religious experience, or could be a religious experience. Perfectly, being perfectly capable of dissecting and separating godliness and um, godly living, elevated lifting, uplifted living, a responsible God consciousness living, living from other parts of life. That's really the life where we part ways with the rest of the world, really. Abraham Vino taught us that since there's only one Hashem, he's by nature, so to speak, inseparable. And since we never created ourselves, since we come from him, he's our source. And we don't have a way of separating ourselves from ourselves. We don't have a way of escaping from ourselves. Somebody once called me up that she's very depressed. She goes, needs to go on vacation. I said, you're going to take yourself along? That's all there is to it. <laughs> Somebody once called me up that she's a very depressed teenager. She she think of committing suicide. I thought, I have no issue, but how? Let's be practical. How's going to help? You'll be left with the same yucky feeling without a body to escape into. How's that going to help? Nothing's changed. What's going to change? Your feelings, your emotions, your spirit, your mind. Those, that's part of who you are. I mean, nobody says, you know, I'm thinking with my veins and arteries and protoplasm and cytoplasm. Nobody says, I love with my hands. I love with my veins. That's ridiculous. It's this, you, who you really are. Your thoughts and your feelings and your, your internal experience. Your emotional experience. So whilst you're in a body, you can just always find some kind of escape. Some of them are not so advisable. But it's a temporary measure. You know, you can always overeat, oversleep. Overdrink. You can always do do things. So you get until you get your act together. You can do something. At least you still got a body, you know, until you get your act together. But once you do this, that's final. So Toda, I'm you know, I don't see why it's practical. Honestly speaking, you just take yourself along and same yucky feelings. And the worst part is you did it to yourself. You didn't even got way to escape. So. Monotheism teaches that. That's what Ron Vino made as the founding principle. That's why we are his children, that since there's only one Hashem, there is no place where he isn't. Nothing can be separated from him because there's only one of him. That's the oneness of Hashem. So, so Orizoa was able to make that joke because he was familiar with the secular mindset, having been so many years part of it, that uh, non-Haredi policemen can actually say three on a motorcycle illegal because he is capable of limiting Hashem kind of metaphorically to space, 
to a limited space, three on a motorcycle illegal, as if Hashem is a separate part. Hey, we're religious. Hashem is with us. Oh, with us? Oh, so you've got another person with you. So what if that person isn't the same kind of person? So, so it's God. Three on a motorcycle illegal. I think it's a very deep joke, honestly. If you can, I'm a Kenzo Gubshat in a joke. So, really, that's the topic of this understanding that our dependence, our understanding and our deep realization on depends on the truth forces us as Jews, as children of Avraham, to search out the whole truth. The entire truth. I had a student once uh, said to me, she used to argue with me. She was, was not raised religious at all. And she used to argue with me about things. I used to say, no, that conflicts with what it says in the Torah. I used to quote her the words in the Torah, but unfortunately she never ever read it. I said, did you ever read the five books of Moses? She says, no. I said, read the five books of Moses and then we can talk. At least we can dialogue. Nah, I haven't got time. I haven't got the patience. I said, well, this is a verse that says in the Torah Okay, and she couldn't decide if she wants to be religious or not. One day, Monday morning, she comes in all excited. Rebbiton, I read everything. I decided I don't want to be religious. I said, oh, really now? Okay, why not? Over the weekend, from beginning to end. I said, okay, why didn't you want to be religious? So she said she doesn't like some of the stories over there. Which stories don't you like? Okay. She doesn't like the story of Lloyd and his daughters. All right, admittedly, it's not all that fancy. And she didn't like the story with Tom and Yehuda, but, you know, also doesn't have its, you know, it's, uh, it's not so fancy. Also, I mean, you have to look at it properly, but, you know, superficially. So I said, okay, I understand you don't like it. And she had, was very, she had a million aggressive, well, she was very angry about these two stories and she found them very, very problematic. So I said to her, listen, I have no issue if you don't like them, but the only thing is, uh, I'm afraid to tell you, I feel very bad for you. You just now told me that from now on you're going to be religious. She said, no, I just told you I'm not being religious. Why? And she starts all over again because she doesn't like the story and all that. I said, okay, you, but, you, but you, you'll have to be religious. If you don't like the story, then you're going to have to be religious. And she says, why? I said, how do you know the story of Light and Daughters? You were with them in the cave? You're there? You're eyewitness? You were there? You put a camera in, you saw it? How do you know the story? Who told you the story? How do you know the story about Tommy Yehuda? Where do you know it from? Who told it to you? You were there? You're an eyewitness? It says in the Torah. Oh, you think it's true? Oh, you think the Torah is reporting a true story? Oh, then, then if that, then the Torah is true, then you'll have to be religious. Oh, okay. It's one or the other. Either it's not true, and then you don't have to worry about it, you don't have to bother about it, you don't have to get so emotional and passionate and angry and aggressive about it. You just don't have to worry. It's just a fable. You don't have to got nothing to do with you. It doesn't affect your life in any which way. It's a nice bedtime story. Or, it, it, as you say, not such a nice story. Either way, I don't care. Or you're getting mad because you think it's true, so that the whole story is true. And that's really the whole thing. Our, dep- our understanding on our deep, sheer dependence on truth for a strategy for living. For having a birthday means that before this day didn't exist, having not existed, you have no way of knowing what to do with the life that you never created. 
have not created life, you don't have a strategy for living. Only the creator of that life is the only one who's going to be the one and only authentic author of to give you a plan for living. No one else is authorized because everybody else came after the fact with their own birthday. So unless he gave me a divine communication to tell me what to do with the life that I never created, I don't have a way of living. But as Jews, what Avraham Avinu founded as a founding principle is that we need to know the whole truth, not half the truth, the whole truth. Either it's true, and then I don't have another way of living because the laws were here before my birthday, or it's not true and I have no way of knowing what to do with life. I'm reminded I once had a, a 10th grader in a certain school. I don't teach there anymore. The school doesn't exist anymore, actually. And um, she's, she, we had gotten to these questions about Mahmoud Hasina, Harsina, how you prove it, stuff like that. So she said, you know, I know it's true, but right now I don't care about the truth. I just want to have fun. So I said, okay, all right, let's talk about that. I said, what would you like? So you'd like to apply for an exemption to suspend truth until you get your act together. She says, right. I said, how many years do you need? She said, probably about six. Okay, so let's see if we got our facts straight. You need uh, some kind of exemption from Hashem, from God, to exempt you from having to accommodate truth for the next six years. All right, so you, for the next six years, you're not accommodating any truth. No. Okay, so what would you like to do in your new, new state? Let's say I'd be authorized, hypothetically, to give you an exemption sign, duly signed and certified for the next six years, you're exempted from uh, accommodating any religious truths. Okay, fine. Um, what would you like to do the next six years? So I said, are you going to suspend all truth from your life at, um, in order to have the fun that you want? She said, yeah. I can't deal with truth now. I need to have fun now. She says, uh, yeah. I said, well, what are we going to do with your thing? So she said, I'm going on vacation to Hawaii with my friend. So um, I said, okay, how are you getting to Hawaii? She said, by plane. I said, so where's the plane leaving from? She says, JFK. I said, what time is the plane leaving? She says, 3.30. I said, wow, you're accommodating a lot of truths over there going all the way to the JFK, accommodating their schedule. I said, how about was the time of the Ebola disease? Remember Ebola disease? I said, how about if you find out that in that part of Hawaii, there's an outbreak of Ebola disease, would you go there? She says, no. I said, well, you're accommodating the truth. I said, how about was the time when Obama was thing and it was Black Lives Matter? Remember they were kniving uh, white supremacists on the street? Black Lives Matter. Remember that whole movement? Yeah. yeah. I said, how about if you find out that in that area, a lot of blacks, and they just could, might knife you on the street. Are you going to go to that area? She goes, no. I said, wow, you're accommodating the truth. 
I said, how about if you show up in the hotel room and there's something wrong with the shower? Either it's boiling hot the water or it's freezing cold. Are you going to ask for a different room? Yeah. So I say, so actually you are accommodating truth, but you're just picking and choosing which truth yes and which truth no. So why? What are you telling me? That the religious truths are not as true as your physical truths? Right? So what are you telling me? That you're only a body and not a soul? So what are you telling me? Your body's going to live forever? Exactly. So what are you telling me? Your body's going to live forever and you'll never have to deal with your soul? How can your body live forever? You don't know how to sustain it, said your birthday. If you never knew how to create yourself, said your birthday, how are you going to be able to sustain your body? You don't know how to give yourself life, said your birthday. So there's no such thing as accommodating half-truths and being safe. Because you yourself told me that if something isn't safe, you accommodate the truth. So what are you telling me? Just because it's not spiritually safe, it's less dangerous, it's much more dangerous because the soul survives the body. The body doesn't survive the soul. Proof is everybody dies. So you're going to be left with a tortured, abused soul because you refuse to accommodate the whole truth. So, I wanted to show you how this is also true with our emotions. Here's this little piece I wrote, Harmonizing Logic with Emotion. You know this piece, right, from the book. It reads like this. Um, anybody who wants to claim that with logic you can't accommodate Torah living, I'm arguing against that. So I'm going to take a few mitzvahs that are by nature emotional mitzvahs, and I'm going to show you how using the entire truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, the unadulterated, uncompromised, undiluted truth is the antidote. And as I said, Rambam is always my go-to rabbi, my in-house therapist, is the antidote to bring you back to reality. So I'll take a mitzvah, but tzedek tishma amesecho. A mitzvah in the Torah of judging your fellow man favorably. Now we know that when we get hurt or resentful, from any fellow human being, or we feel negative towards them or feel insulted, then it's hard for us to judge them favorably. So how on earth will the B&B &B principle help? So I want to show you a simple thought. Having a birthday means that before this day you didn't exist. We know that. Beings that don't exist don't know anything until they are brought into existence by a being who knows how to do that. Following the logic? Tell me when I'm being illogical. Okay. So therefore, all human beings will only have the amount of information at their fingertips about their fellow human beings only as much as their creator will give them. You're going to be limited by how much you know about other people. Because since you never existed, 
you can't give yourself information. Agreed? Okay. So the only way to know anything about anyone is either by clear evidence or if they told you. Clear evidence that conforms to logic, not your made-up nonsense. Clear evidence. Now, very holy people do know things about other people, but it's not your average person. It's not you and me. And they only know really because Hashem told them by dint of their holiness. They have a, a holy spirit in them. You know, they have Ruach HaKodesh. So, when you're being judgmental of someone, really, you're being arrogant because you are imagining that you are possessing certain information about people and as if you know and verified their motives for doing things and you have no evidence under the sun because you're not the other person. You never lived their life. You're lacking all the information about the details of the life. And a person is an entire nuclear reactor atomic cosmos. A person is a whole world unto itself. A person is a whole, you know, conglomeration of evolutionary activities that are so mysterious and linked one to another. I mean, the average person doesn't know anything about it even about himself, he has no idea, he doesn't even know who he was in the last time, in the last reincarnation. We know very little about ourselves, and we are very um, pathetically um, uh, unaware about a lot of stuff that's going on inside us, you know, all, all kinds of things. So why would you think, you don't even know enough about yourself, why would you think you know anything about anybody else enough to be able to make a judgment on them? It's irrational. It's not rational. It violates logic. What makes you think that you know anything about anybody? We make up reasons. She did this for this reason, for that reason, and now I can be judgmental of her. You don't know. Most of the time, the person himself doesn't know. Yeah, go ahead. There are situations sometimes where, like, you want to go and trust the gun, you really don't trust the person, like, you're, you're being irrational. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes, like, mm-hmm. right, like, oh, probably, like, like, sometimes, like, you're just being, like, irrational. Like, it's, like, That's your mitzvah. No, I know, but like... Well, the, what the rational thing is to do is say, I don't know, and it's none of my business. That's, that's yeah, I'll tell us to to give a little coma, yeah. That's possible. You mean midas Yeah, midas Yeah. Oh. The halacha is that you have possession unbearably. Midas is the highest level, it's just not judge at all. Right. Right. So what the rational thing to do is to say, I don't know. I just don't know. Since I'm a be- created being with a birthday, I am not, by nature, I, it is illogical for me to imagine that I'm in possession of enough knowledge to be able to make any judgment. Therefore, I don't make judgment. Hamishpat Hashem al-Kim. All the mishpat is to Hashem. Only the one, only Hashem can judge because only He knows everything. Mishpat Hashem Alekim. It's not it's not a pasuk that I'm familiar with. I don't know. We can rabbi Google it. <laughs> um, okay. So so far so good. So basically, to sum up this point, I'm saying that the B and B principle from rationalistic perspective also works for a mitzvah in the Torah, since. 
we were created, Hashem gave us a birthday, we were created to accommodate Torah living, it's irrational to imagine or assume that any part of the Torah isn't possible for us to keep. That would violate logic. Because we were created to accommodate Torah living, because those were the, layers that, the, the laws that were here before us. It's just like bleach. It's on the same consistent principle of bleach. Just like you would accommodate the laws of bleach by not drinking it, so too you have to accommodate the laws of Torah because you were created to keep it. As a matter of fact, when you violate the laws of Torah, you're being irrational. Because who in their right mind works against themselves? You have, you've been pre-programmed to pursue pleasure and, and avoid pain. And pursuing the highest form of pleasure is accommodating the laws of life which we were created to keep and avoiding the pain of not, of not keeping it. Like a person who imbibes bleach. He's not being punished. It's just that bleach is a real thing and it brings with it the consequence of using something that was made to wash floors as a drink. So that's where free will comes in. You see, when I have a logical argument with somebody or, or explain to somebody the B&B principle, I once had this situation. I was speaking to somebody until 2 a.m. Um, I was going through my book and all the principles and everything. And after she was arguing, and she had already been around the block a couple of times to try some stuff, already been out in India and back, and with the Christians as well, and back. Uh, but at this point, she wasn't religious at all. By 2 a.m., she said, forget it, I give up, it's the truth. So I said, so you're going to be religious? She goes, no. I said, thanks. What, you confirmed the truth one more time. Hashem says, if Hashem promises free will, he delivers. I put in front of you... Uh, the blessing and the curse, life and death, and choose life. And if somebody would have asked Hashem, oh, Hashem, how on earth are you going to create a creature that will resonate with logic, will be operating his life through logic, won't have another way of strategically figuring out life only through the logic, through the basic operational logic of cause and effect, which is the basis of all science, and then you're going to give him a Torah, so it'll be logic for him to to keep it, knowing that having a birthday has forced him into a situation that he cannot know on his own what to do with the life he never asked for, so he has to accommodate laws of Torah, and you will still give him free will where he'll be capable of violating logic against his own better judgment in a self-destructive activity. Hashem, you can't do that. It's not happening. Hashem said, I'm God. I can do anything I want. I know how to create free will. I know how to create everything. And he did. So if I can have a discussion with somebody till 2 a.m., and she says to me at the end of that, forget it, it's the truth. And I ask, you're going to be religious? She says, no. I say, thanks for confirming the truth one more time. Hashem promises that he gives you in being free will. He delivers. How? He knows how to do that. He's God. He's not limited. So when we see somebody who's, who 
won't accommodate Torah living. It's tragic, it's sad. It's sad to see human beings destroying themselves. But on the other hand, it's one more confirmation on the truth of Torah. That there is indeed free will. Otherwise, we'd all be robots. I would never struggle with anything. Let's take another mitzvah. I took one, loneliness. Loneliness sounds like very, very emotional, right? How can the BB principle work for that one? So here's my little scenario. Your birthday tells you that before this you didn't exist. And when you didn't exist, you didn't create yourself. So how did you get here? Well, your parents also have a birthday, so that for sure doesn't help. So your source of existence must be the only source of existence because everyone else came with a, in with a birthday. Whoever is here on planet Earth has a birthday. So there's only one source of existence. That's Hashem. And since you didn't create yourself, you're going to have to remain completely dependent on your source of existence because things that never existed don't know how to sustain themselves. So you can never be separated from your own source of existence. Which also means that you're always connected to the source of your existence. Which means you're never alone. So you, can never be, so you don't have to be lonely because you're never alone. Because you're always connected to the source of your existence because you don't have to create yourself. Because you don't know how to sustain yourself. You don't own this thing called life. That's why people die. If they own this thing called life, why would they die? Assuming that they like life. So since you're always connected to your source of existence because he is the one that's providing you existence, because you don't know how to create yourself, you're never alone because you're always with him. So there's no reason to be lonely. No reason to be lonely because you're never alone. And you're always with the most powerful, exciting source that there is. Whatever anybody gives you emotionally, financially, spiritually, psychologically, academically, intellectually, religiously, anything anybody ever give you is never going to come to the, the stuff that the real source of all these blessings and bounties and, and stimulation and, and validation and love Nobody can give you more than the source of all this stuff yourself. And since there's only one source, you're always connected to that source, so you're never lonely, you're never alone. Because you and him are one. And since there's only one of him, he's inseparable. So then when one isn't with him, technically you're not being... Right, but the, a person's um, soul is made out of five levels of subconsciousness. So a person dies, his nefesh, his physical body separates from him, but his ruach neshama is chai yechida. Go back to... Ba'a ruach neshama is alikim, to pasuk in kohelet. If there's no afterlife, everything's a waste of time. Where you, I mean, what are you going to do with everything? It's... Uh, in the end, everything's a, a sack of bones left to putrefy in the deep black earth. Skeleton of bones. Then you have to listen to my first podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Um, what about rejection? You want to do one more? Want to do rejection? Yes. Okay. Having a birthday means that before this, you didn't exist. And beings that don't exist can't create themselves. Having not created yourself, you cannot possibly know on your own which relationship is best for you permanently. Having not created yourself, you lack the information on which relationship is good for you long term. How do we know? Because people have made mistakes in relationships. They've chosen the wrong people to hang out with. Or whatever level of commitment. You've probably also made some mistakes. Not that I know anything about you. But uh, just from the natural order of living. You've, you've thought some things about some people. Have you ever been wrong? Right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I've never bumped to the subject that says I was always right. There's no such thing. So if you've been wrong before, you can be wrong again. So that you can never be 100% sure which relationship is good for you long term. So that when somebody rejects you, you actually don't have any evidence that that's a relationship that you want long term. So, exactly. That's right. So that's how the B&B principle helps you get over the hurt of rejection. Because if Hashem calls that the person should reject you, since he knows better than me, and he's, he's more invested in my happiness than I am in myself, because he's God. He's not limited, I'm limited. He's better than me. Chesed keel kolo yom. Ratzel lehetev ki chavitz chesed hu. Exactly. So the idea of B&B &B can help you get over the pain of rejection because it can reorient you. That since I've never created myself, I have no way of knowing which relationship is best for me long term. So I actually lucked it out that the person rejected me. What about loving Hashem? Loving Hashem sounds like that's really all the emotional stuff. B&B &B can't help. So I have two ways of explaining this one. Um, birthday beings never loved anyone because beings that don't exist don't know how to love because they just don't exist. Birthday beings? Yeah. We are all birthday beings, in case you didn't notice. Yeah. So beings arrive to planet Earth and have no idea who to love because they never... Never used to love anybody. Right, I'm here now. I have a whole choice of people what to fall in love with. So generally speaking, we fall in love with things that we perceive that give us the most pleasure or can give us the most love back. So we've got very many things to choose from. We can fall in love with food, entertainment, money, good times, or something more of a sophisticated nature, family, relationships, Values, intellectual pursuits, um, sadikim. Now, the truth is that it only makes sense to love A, something that gives you the most pleasure, and B, that which will give you 
the most opportunity for the most satisfying relationship, like a reciprocal relationship. Yeah, or no. Well, actually, uh, I have to admit that narcissistic people are not so much looking for reciprocity. They're just looking for something to satisfy them, that's something they can exploit. Not a very pleasant topic to discuss, but it's the truth. So, of all these things, Hashem's got to come out as the winner because He has the most love to give you back and He'll reciprocate it the most. And since He's the source of all the good times, even if you choose to fall in love with something less sophisticated, music, food, entertainment, money, cars, or something like that, Hashem is still the source of all those blessings. So you still got to love him the most for giving you all those blessings. So you could, through all this unsophisticated stuff, also come to our Hashem by, by thanking him for all these blessings. We always learn that all these blessings are like short-term. Like that's why, because it's like, like money, food, um, all those kinds of things are like short term. Unfortunately, money is short term. Wish we wish it was long term. Wish it never ran out. <laughs> right. You know, so like, like coming and coming to love Hashem through things like that short term, like that. And let's say the money goes away, and all of a sudden you love Hashem. Anymore. Like, what, like what happens? Like it's all short term things. Like, it's not nothing like real, like like steady. It's not. Like, it's um, a mitzvah to to thank Hashem for all the things. Blessings he gives us. Then they're going to have to love Hashem for the fact that they lost the money. And they're now going to have a deeper relationship from a different angle. Whatever blessing, they're going to love Hashem for the fact that they, they, even if they lost their money, they still have eyes. That's because they love Hashem, not because of the money. If they're stuck on the money, then when the money's gone. And then that's true. Money. Yeah. Well, that's why. That's why I brought up the issue of narcissism, that if you perceive Hashem as your vending machine, your ATM machine, your cash machine, and that he owes you all this stuff because you're in it for a narcissistic relationship, or what, and if, so then when he doesn't deliver, you'll be angry at him. So that's how some people respond. But if you love him because you love him and you're so grateful because you're humble and you don't think you deserve anything, you're so grateful for all his blessings... That's right. That's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. But it's part of Avs Hashem and Shab Chinez to thank Hashem for all the notice, all the blessings of life. And you're thinking anyway with the money, with that, the money, with the food, that, the food, all. True. True. But, but the more blessings you have the more, more obligated you become to thank Hashem and to get closer to Him through these blessings. It also puts an obligation on you. Yes, yeah, so someone who has more blessings has to... Thank Hashem more, yeah, of course. A thousand percent, of course. Right, right. That's right. What that mean? The biggest blessing, I'll take for someone who's poor, is, is not to have money. So that's why, I'll take someone who's rich, so do you think Hashem more than someone who's poor? But then it says... No, it's not like a... No, it sounds like then you're thinking Hashem based on blessings and not based on the way Hashem gives you the relationship, no? Right, that's what I was trying to say. Right, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, when you thank Hashem, that's how you form a relationship. It's the nature of the relationship. Right, but if that's the nature, then I'm saying when there's no money, then that's also the nature of the relationship. Right, but through no thanking him, you, in, you learn to love him more because you notice him more. You're in a more deeper relationship, and it brings you to... But then it comes to down to a guy that has nothing to do with money through relationships, smartness. Because tomorrow, someone has something like a, have like a brain damage. They can't be smart anymore. If all... If they're in the habit of thanking Hashem for everything, then they will survive that Nisoyim better because they're in a deep relationship by the time it happens. So being talented Hashem gives someone talent or the money or the food is all to bring you to Ahava and then afterwards when there's situation where you don't have it, then it's... You already can live better. off the strength of that relationship that you created through the thanking. Wherever Victor Miller said that uh, he arrived where he did in his, in his relationship with Hashem, through learning to constantly thank Hashem and the proverbial, as he's put it, the ribbon of his hat. He used to thank Hashem that his hat had a ribbon in it because he, it gives him hanor. And so if you learn to thank Hashem for every single detail, that's how you built his relationship with Hashem, ribbon by ribbon, step by step. And he reached such greatness, he said. He, he discovered a big secret in the Avas Hashem. And here's another way how you can learn to love Hashem is from understanding that the nature of a person is that he loves himself the most. The Gemara says, Adam A person is closest to himself. And a person by nature loves his family and the people closest to him. And Hashem calls himself that he's related to us. Hashem says, Isn't he your father? And he calls himself that he's Hashem. He's related to us. And since Hashem implanted in us in nature that we're more forgiving and unconditionally loving to our relatives, you're not getting a closer relative than Hashem himself. So it's like saying, when you you say, I love Hashem. It's like saying, I love myself. That's okay. You're used to that. Even if you think you don't love yourself, that also comes from self-love. I'm not saying it's in the most healthy f form, but... So it's easy to love Hashem. From, being, from these, these kind of things, it's, it's, it's easy to learn to love Hashem. Let's, um, I want to share with you some stories just to finish up the topic of how Am Yisrael, the Jewish nation, total adherence to the truth, because we embrace truth globally, totally, uncompromisingly, undiluted, unadulterated, and will take nothing but the truth, that's what always kept us strong, that we were so determined to, um, as Orthodox people, to find out what's what does Hashem want from us now? That's really what's kept the, the spiritual stamina of Am Yisrael is really rooted in this concept. Yes, yeah, go ahead. It means anything that you know that this is the best you can do for Hashem, for yourself, for the Jewish nation, you create in yourself a connection with it. 
That's a great question. What, what it boils down to is like this. If something exists and you don't know about it, does it still exist? Yeah. If something exists and you know about it, does it mean that you have a personal relationship with it? No. no. So, for in same thing goes in truth. Truth exists. Every part, every part of truth exists. Whatever exists exists existentially. It's just truth, right? But the many truths that you don't know. And still, also, there are many truths that you don't feel connected to. So you will admit that it's true because it has valid sources, but you just don't feel a connection to it. So if a truth exists and you don't feel connected to it, can you love it? No. So if a truth exists and you don't feel connected to it and you can't love it, are you motivated to embrace it as part of your life and, and, and accommodate the truth? No. So, to what our real job in this world is, as children of Avraham, is to learn to fall passionately in love with truth. If you think about it, really, what we're out for is, is creating a passionate relationship to truth. That's really what we're here for. That's really what our job in the planet Earth is. B&B principle states that your dependence, your strategic dependence on living life safely creates a situation where you're spending life trying to discover the truth so that you can accommodate it. But one of those truths that you need to accommodate is that you need to fall in love with truth. Hashem is Oyev Tzadikim, you have to be Oyev Tzadikim. Hashem is Oyev Amay Yisrael, you have to be Oyev Amay Yisrael. Hashem loves righteous people, Hashem loves good people, Hashem loves the, the Jewish nation. You have to somehow develop and cultivate a passionate, unconditional love for righteous people who represent Hashem or Hashem's mouthpiece and for fellow Jews who are loyal like you. So that we're here in this world, really, to embrace truth means to develop um, in whatever way you can, either by thanking Hashem a lot, that causes you to have a strong personal relationship with, tr with the personal truth that Hashem has indeed blessed you, by anything. I mean, you have to find a, a strategy that works for you. We have to go globetrotting trying to figure out a way that turns us on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's true. That's valid. Yeah, sure. Why not? That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. What does it have to do with what? It's just uh, graphics. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the concept is harmonizing logic with emotion. That's a heart. No, that's not. That's just graphics. No. Yeah. Here's a fascinating story I need to share with you. I fell in love with this story. Talk about developing a passionate connection. 
It's all happened to Rev. Eliachim Meisel's Lodger of. Maybe that's why I fell in love with it, because I read a lot about him. And um, in the town where he lived in Lodz, in Poland, um, then, um, so there was a Moisa, the classic Moisa is an informer, is a disloyal Jew who would inform on his fellow Jews authorities just to get them in trouble, just to curry favor with them. And he would always make trouble for fellow Jews, and he was terrible, and everybody was terrified of him, and he was the classic, you know, despot and demon that everybody was afraid of, and he would always manipulate everybody to do what he wanted. Everyone was so intimidated of him. One day he felt he was dying, so and his best friends were all the non-Jews who would just make trouble for, you know, jail them up and anything. that Anyone he didn't like, he, he had a pick on them, he would just get them jailed up and in trouble. So he felt he was dying, so he called for the Hevra Kadisha, and he said that his last will and te- testament, his demand, that he should be buried upside down. And uh, they tried to convince him, but they saw no one to talk to, so they just left without an, uh, giving him a uh, commitment, and, and that was that. Of course, they buried him the normal way, and they went to ask the the larger of Elichaim Meisels. They tell him this story, and he said, of course, no, it's ridiculous. It's, uh, it's against halacha, and we don't uh, honor the wishes of a dying person that if it's going to hurt his soul in the next world. He mustn't do that. He mustn't put a fellow Jew in torture. So just buried in the normal way. After a few days, the Polish authorities came and demanded of the Hebrew Kedisha that they have to open the the coffin, I mean the the grave, yeah. And they said, no, we can't do that. They wouldn't hear of anything. And they forced him, the police forced him to open it. Okay. They had no choice. They peered inside. And after they were satisfied, they went away. And the Chavrak ran after them and asked them, excuse me, do you mind? Curious, what were you looking for? So in very anger, he glared at the Chavrak and he said, because we received a letter from our friend that he knows that you hate him so much that you're going to deliberately bury him upside down, which is against Jewish law, and then we would have jailed you all up. So here's a simple story of why strict adherence to our lacha reminds me of a story that's a book called The Shabbos, published by Oscar, and it's written by Ramez Lotowitz, and he says that he was a bacha in the yeshiva to Ferris Hushalayim that belonged to Moshe Feinstein when this story happened. It's a blood-curdling story. But it really brings out the point, so I apologize. It says that they were sitting and learning with Moshe Feinstein, and um, a woman came in crying hysterically with the following story. She said that um, straight after the war, uh, a certain Rav gave her a heteraguna that she could remarry on the basis that her husband was definitely killed. You know the story? What do you know? That's a crazy story, no? And But in the shuffle of post-war trying to get her act together, she lost the document. And in between, she remarried. And she has a husband of 20 years and grown kids. And her first husband showed up. He said, you read it from, read it from the book directly? He said, everybody's 
It's like, imagine sitting there and hearing this story. I mean, I wouldn't like to be in that room. Probably breathing stuff. And Moshe Fanchen um, asked this woman very gently and kindly, she can we please repeat the story with every detail. He listened and listened and he closed his eyes and he concentrated very, very heavily, listened to every single word. And no one repeated it. And then he was deep, deep, deep in thought and everyone was like, can imagine the atmosphere was heavy. Well, it's like feeling bad so much. She keeps having to appear. I'm like, she's crying. And I'm like, I'm so He was listening, listening. And when he was done, he asked her again to repeat it. And again, finally, he said, when he asked her, at one point, he asked her to repeat it, she threw herself on the floor and she, in uncontrollable sobs and hysterics, she admitted that she never got a header from this Rob who she quoted who's no longer alive, but she passing herself because there wasn't one surviving member from that transport of Jews who were brought on that day and all murdered and slaughtered on the same day. So she passing herself that she can definitely remarry because he's definitely gone. I know what they what he did. Uh, the woman finds herself with two husbands. I have no idea what he did. But it doesn't say there anything. But, never mind the grown children. But... What Ramay Shafanshan said, I think, is very poignant. He said, I knew. He said, I knew this Rav who you quoted, that he gave you a heta. I knew him before the war. I was at that time a young man. And I don't come to his toenails in Torah, in Yerushalayim, in Halacha. He was a giant. After the war, I personally was Mata hundreds and hundreds of agunas that can remarry. And it never, ever happened to me that somebody's first husband showed up. And I said to myself, if it never happened to me, and I'm nothing compared to this person, Hashem is not going to be Marshall, this Rob, who I knew before the war, that it should happen to him. There's no way. And I think it just sums the whole thing up. Because we are a nation of truth seekers, thrill seekers, triple speed seekers at this point, but because we are a nation of truth seekers, we have always embraced the full truth that Avraham Avinu taught us, that the oneness of Hashem forces us to understand and recognize and relate to and create a strong resonant relationship with our dependence on the full truth to have a true strategy for living. That's why we have survived everything and we will survive everything. In the end, in the end, Hashem has testified that we will all be His chosen holy nation forever and ever and ever. Forever and ever and ever, we will remain the chosen holy nation by dint of the fact that we will accept nothing but the truth. So I want to thank you very much for coming.